1 John chapter 1 and uh, verse number 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy uh, may be full. Then in chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Then in chapter 5 and verse 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Three reasons stated very clearly why this book was written. First of all, that your joy may be full. Second of all, that you sin not. And thirdly, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I'd like to deal with those three things tonight. And uh, uh, I probably won't get all three of them. We'll see how the time goes. And uh, we'll uh, go from there. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us that we could live forever. Lord, you've been good to us. And I just want to praise you and thank you tonight. Oh, God, I need your help tonight. I pray for uh, your power and your wisdom. And, Lord, you give me strength. And just help me to be a blessing, to be an encouragement and a help. Use me, God, for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this book of 1 John is, is such a wonderful book. It's been a great blessing in my life. And uh, because primarily... It is from this book that I found the assurance of my salvation. Now the book was written for other reasons, as we've already seen there, but I think it's the greatest uh, scripture in the Bible and the greatest book in the Bible uh, to gain the assurance of salvation. If I deal with a person that's doubting their salvation, this is where I always direct them, because I do not believe that assurance can be found outside of the Word of God. I don't... As I mentioned this morning, I don't believe that salvation can be had apart from the Word of God. And assurance of salvation can only be found in the Word of God. This is the place to find it. My advice usually to people is to read it and ask God if they're really saved to give them that assurance. Every time I read it, I get more assurance. And if a person reads this book and their heart is still full of doubt, then my advice is to get saved because in all likelihood the person is not saved, because I believe the Bible will accomplish that for which it was written. If this was written to give the assurance of salvation, and it doesn't do that, then evidently there's no salvation to be assured of, because God's Word will not, absolutely cannot fail uh, ever. And so we like to look at this, uh, these things, and I'm just going to say a few things about joy here and, and move on to the second point, which I want to say more about. He said, I write these things, write we unto you that your joy may be full. Now, he didn't say, I just want you to have joy, but he said, I want you to have fullness of joy. I want your joy to be full. I want it to be complete. And of course, this can only come with being saved. person that's not saved does not have fullness of joy. Uh, there's a difference between having fun 
and having joy. Fun is a temporary thing. And there's pleasure in sin for a season. But the Bible said, At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So this joy the Lord's talking about comes with being saved. Second of all, it comes with being assured. A person that doesn't have the assurance of their salvation doesn't have fullness of joy. I've never seen a person that was died in their salvation uh, that was full of joy. They're full of doubt and, and there's no peace in their heart. Uh, they don't have joy. So God wrote this so you could have assurance because assurance brings joy. And there's nothing more wonderful than being able to go to bed tonight and know absolutely, positively, 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven. Now that's wonderful. And that's real joy that the Bible talks about. And then to be cleansed. He talks about there in chapter 2 about our sins forgiven. Or in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Then on that in chapter 2, uh, not to sin. If we do sin, we have an advocate. So not only being saved and assured, but knowing that your sins are forgiven. And even as a believer, you know, if you have sin in your life, you don't have joy. David said, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Uh, he committed a terrible sin, committed adultery, committed murder. And, uh, but I'll tell you one thing. David said, My sin is ever before me. That sin robbed him of his joy. You know, as a believer in Christ, we can fail the Lord. We can sin. But I'll tell you, if you sin, it'll rob me of your joy until that sin is confessed and made right with God. And so having our sins forgiven as a believer uh, it brings the fullness of joy. And then to be Spirit-filled, to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, brings the fullness of joy, knowing that you're obedient to the Lord. Now the Lord said in John 15, 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Notice he said, I spoke these things that my joy, the joy of God, the joy that the Lord has, might be yours and it might be full. A fullness of joy. In John 16, 24, Hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may uh, be full. Now notice, in John 15, 11, he said, These things have I spoken unto you. How do we get joy? Through what God said, through the Word of God. That ought to bring, that ought to bring joy. And sometimes I think we've heard the Word of God so much that, uh, that we don't really pay attention. We don't even realize what He's saying to us and how wonderful those truths of God are. Uh, you remember the first time that uh, that you read these verses, for instance, in 1 John, uh, that God says you can know you're saved, you can be positive, you're going to heaven. And what a blessing that was. I can remember what a blessing to understand that and to know that. And then uh, as I used to study Revelation and study about the coming of the Lord and the fact we're going to get a glorified body and live with Him forever. And uh, the joy of that first understanding, what a blessing. But you know, sometimes we get used to it and we've heard it so often that it really don't do for us what it ought to do. He said, I spoke these things that you might have joy and then we have joy by getting our prayers answered. 
the Lord had told the disciples at the beginning of his ministry uh, to ask. Uh, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth him that knocketh it shall be opened. And later uh, here near the end of his ministry about three years later he said hitherto have you asked nothing. You've not used this promise that I gave you. He said ask that you may receive that your joy may be full. You know one of the regrets we'll have when we get to heaven is when we realize all that we could have had that we didn't bother to ask God for. You know all the things that we worried about, we worry about. Uh, most of them can be solved just by talking to the Lord about it. In fact, that's what Philippians chapter 4 tells us. And so uh, joy comes through answered prayer. And 1 Peter 1.8, Peter talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we can have that. God wants us to have joy tonight. And we, God can give it to us. Now, let's move on from there. That's uh, one reason this book was written and, and what a joy it brings. Now in chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Second reason that he wrote this book is for victory. Victory over sin. Is it possible to live victorious? I believe that it is. He said, I wrote these things that you sin not. And when we sin, it's because we've neglected what God wrote. That's what brings it about. Uh, you know, as it's been stated, this book will keep you from sin. Our sin will keep you from this book. And how true that is. And uh, the book, the Word of God will keep us. He said, I wrote these things that Ye sin not. If we do sin, which we do. Uh, now, that doesn't give us an excuse for sin. I've had people say, tell me, they say, well, were you going to sin anyway? I mean, everybody's sin some as if they were making an excuse for their sin. God tells us not to sin. Yes, we fail. No matter how hard we try, we still fail. But sometimes we, because we say, well, everybody's going to sin, we don't try hard enough to keep from sinning. God doesn't want us to sin. And I believe that, uh, I, you know, I don't believe we have to sin. I believe the victory is there. If we sin, it's not God's fault, it's our fault. And so victory, how is it possible to have victory? Well, you have to get found uh, to, or get saved. Before this is possible, I want you to look at verse 9 of chapter 3. And he said, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now this verse uh, confuses some people. It used to confuse me. Uh, because in, back in chapter 1, Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. And so there he, uh, he tells us that uh, we do sin. If we say we don't, we're lying and trying to make God out to be a liar. Well, verse 9 here said, if you're born of God, you can't sin. 
And Paul, his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, which verse is right? Well, the fact is they're both right. And uh, to understand this, you have to go to Genesis chapter, or to John, rather, chapter 3, where the Lord is talking to Nicodemus. And uh, he said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can enter the second time into his mother's womb to be born? And Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when I was born into this world, my parents, I had a fleshly birth. When I was born of the Spirit of God, I had a spiritual birth. Whosoever is born of God, what's that talking about? That's talking about the inner man. That's talking about the new man. That's talking about what God done. That, uh, that new birth. Now that part that God saved, that part of me that's born of God cannot sin according to the Bible. Now that's why when a believer dies, they go immediately to heaven because there's no sin there. All the sins have been taken care of. And that's why no matter how, how good a Christian a person is, how saved they are, how close they walk to God, uh, their body has to be buried in the ground because it's sinful and the wages of sin is death and death still affects believers. Even though we're saved, had all of our sins forgiven, there's still sin in the flesh. And therefore it must suffer the penalty of death. Now, the soul and spirit does not die, but goes on. And that goes right along with the scripture where Jesus going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And Timothy said, Christ hath abolished death. Now, as he, he could not be talking about physical death because people still dying physically. Save people. But he's talking about the, the new man, the, the new birth. That part of man never dies, cannot sin. Now, uh, in, in chapter 5 and verse 4 and 5, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth? that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what am I, why, why, why am I saying all this? Because that new birth that God gives, that part that God puts in us, that sinless part of man, affects the outer man. It affects the flesh. And I want you to turn to Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we'll look at a few verses there. Matthew 12 and uh, verse uh, 33. Matthew 12:33 Either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit O generation of vipers how can you be an evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thy shall be justified, and by thy words thy shall be condemned. Now the Lord gives a very 
uh, a very important principle here, illustrating this truth by a tree. You recognize a tree by the fruit that it brings forth. Now, uh, if I could illustrate, help us understand a little better. Let's say you go out and plant a pine tree. And uh, you plant it and do everything you're supposed to do and fertilize it and all that and take care of it and spray it for bugs. And then in the fall, you go out to harvest your crop of apples. No matter what you do to that tree, you can prune it, you can fertilize it, you can water it, you can do everything that you ought to do to a tree, you can spray it. But I don't care what you do, you'll never get apples off of the pine tree because the problem is not with what you're doing to the tree. The problem is with the tree. And some people, you know, you try to, you, you preach to them, you try to help them produce fruit and help them uh, produce something that's uh, the fruit of the Spirit and all these things, but you cannot do that until you get saved. That's where you've got to have a, the right kind of tree to start with. And so it's impossible. You know, people say, well, you, you know, you get saved by what you do. And you got to live it and all this sort of thing. I want to tell you, the, the only ones that can live it are saved people. And I think history uh, has, uh, has proved that in the time of the Lord. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees, and uh, they were very dedicated and, and uh, put up a big front and a big show. But the Lord, and the, the Lord knew their heart and they despised him and they hated him because he knew what was inside of them, see. They were the wrong kind of trees. That was the problem. And they couldn't produce fruit. It's impossible to live right unless you're saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so a new life. I'm talking about victory. Is it possible to have victory over sin? Yes, but only for a saved person. And if a person isn't saved, now they're not going to live right. I've told you many times the preacher I was talking to believed differently than I do. Remember, he was preaching in a different denomination. And we were discussing this many years ago. And uh, I believe when God saves a man, he saves him forever. I don't believe you have to get saved but one time. That is, if you get saved. Now, a lot of people make professions and, and go through the motions. But I'm talking about getting saved, really getting born again. And uh, he said, why? Uh, he said, if you preach that, people will live anyway. I said, well, I said, if they're not saved, they're not going to live right and it'll make a difference what you preach. And I believed it then and I believe it now. I don't care what you preach to people. If they're not saved, they're not going to live right. The only ones going to live right, the only ones that can live right are saved people. They're the only ones that can. Now, we're not, we're not without sin, but uh, we're not uh, in bondage to sin. The Bible said sin shall not have dominion over you. And there's a difference. So you have to get found. Second of all, how do we gain victory over sin when we fall in love with Jesus? The Apostle Paul said the love of Christ constraineth us. And if we're not motivated by love for the Lord, then we're motivated by the wrong reason. If you're not here tonight because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then there's no reward for you being here except a temporary satisfaction that you may get while you're here. We ought to be motivated by love. And let me say this. If you do what you do because you love the Lord, you'll do it regardless of the circumstances. If you're motivated by love. I wonder how many folks are really motivated by love for the Lord. In, in, in verse 5, he said, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that uh, we are in him. Then in chapter 5 and verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Then in 2 John, if you turn the page there, in verse 6, And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Now, the Bible said also we love him here because he first loved us in 1 John. And so, uh, love for Jesus, that makes it possible to, to live victorious over sin. You know, the Lord summarized the Ten Commandments said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, and all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. And then he said, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, if, you're going to, if you love the Lord, you're not going to make a graven image. You're not going to worship some other God. You're not going to take his name in vain. You love your neighbor, you're not going to take his wife or kill him or steal from him or lie on him. And so the, the, the Lord summarized it all by the commandment of love. And what is it that, that should motivate us to be obedient? It ought to be love for Christ. Now, let's go to John 21. And I want to, I want to show you an illustration of this in the Bible. In John, this is a premier scripture. Uh, John 21. Uh, this is after the resurrection of Christ and, and uh, Peter's, some of the disciples have gone fishing and they caught nothing. And uh, the, the Lord gives them instruction and uh, they, uh, they bring a, a great uh, multitude there of fishes, I believe about 153. And uh, the Lord uh, has a conversation here with Peter and we like to look at verse 15. Uh, after they, they have eaten there, and the Lord has the meal prepared. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thy me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Now, just reading this over, uh, is sometimes it's hard to understand the conversation, but if you'll study these words very carefully, you'll find that the Lord Jesus is using a different word than, uh, than Peter is using. And the, the word that Jesus is using is an agape love. It's a, it's a Christ-like love, a God-like love. He says, Peter... Do you love me like I love you? That's basically what he's saying. You have the same love for me that I have for you. And Peter 
trying to be honest, I believe, uh, uses a different word, and the word he uses uh, is uh, uh, a word that means to be fond of or a friendship love, as you would have a friend. Lord, you know, after all, now, it hasn't been too many days that Peter has denied the Lord and said, I don't even know him. Now, not only did he do it one time, but he'd done it three times. And he went out and wept bitterly and repented. And now, after, after his resurrection, he's gone back to the old life and back to his old job. And he has uh, uh, gotten discouraged or whatever. And I think in Peter's mind, he's saying, Lord, if, if I really loved you like, I, like you love me, I wouldn't have been denying you. I wouldn't have been out there fishing. I'd been out there fishing for men. Then he asked him again. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, Thy knowest that I love thee, he saith unto him, feed my sheep. And again, he uses the same word. And then in verse 17, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And here Jesus takes the word that Peter is using. And that's why it says Peter was grieved. Because he saith, said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? He said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Jesus is saying, You've said to me that you don't love me like I love you and with that Christ-like love. Do you really love me as a friend? Do you have that much love for me? And Peter's grieved. Lord, yes, I don't love you like I ought to, but I do love you, and I believe you did. I believe you did. And I'll tell you, from that time on, later on the day of Pentecost, Peter got up and preached a few days later, and God used that man from that point on in a great and mighty way. 3,000 were saved. You know what I believe? I believe Peter found that Christ-like love. And I believe Peter's life changed. He was not without fault, and Paul had to rebuke him later on an occasion there. Uh, but I'll tell you, I believe Peter was a new man. He was changed. And you know what will bring victory in our life? is when we fall in love with Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, that changes a young man's life, you know. When a young man falls in love with a girl, it'll change his life. And when you fall, and I don't like that term, falling in love, but it's kind of the term we're familiar with. When you fall in love with Jesus, it'll change your life. It'll absolutely change your life. And there's nothing I could say tonight will give you more victory than just falling head over heels in love with Jesus Christ. And it'll, it'll, it'll make you want to do right. It'll make you want to please him. You know, when you love your wife like you ought to, you want to please her and vice versa. When we fall in love with the Lord, uh, it, uh, it uh, gives us victory. Then there's a third reason. That is when we fear the Lord. When we fear the Lord, it also uh, helps us to have victory. 
Proverbs 16, verse 6, By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. I want to do right because I want to please the Lord, and I want Him to be pleased with me. But I'll tell you another reason I want to do right, because I'm afraid not to. It's just like when I was growing up as a boy. My mother accomplished a whole lot many times by saying, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to tell your daddy. And I knew exactly what that meant. She didn't have to explain it any further. I'm going to tell your daddy. The fear of daddy, the fear of what was coming, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And in, in, in chapter 5 and verse 16, before I read that verse, let me, I think I need to uh, explain how God deals with us as a believer in Christ. If you're saved tonight, and if you're saved, you, you've experienced exactly what I'm, I'm going to talk about now. Uh, when I sin, the Holy Spirit convicts me. Does it bother you when you sin? Does it trouble you? Thank God for it. That's, that's an evidence of being saved. I mean, it bothers you. And that's the conviction. That's the Spirit of the Lord dealing with you. Now, what are we to do? The Bible said in 1 Corinthians 11, for we would judge ourselves. We should not be judged, but when we're judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, when that conviction comes upon us, we are to judge that sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lord deals with us. We're to judge it. We're to confess it. And, and the Lord said, if you'll do that, I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you. Now, if I do not do that, then what does God do? He begins to deal with me and chastise me. Now, chastisement can take different forms. Uh, it, could, it could be financial reverses. It could be uh, trouble on the job. It could be trouble in the home. It could be many, many methods of God's dealing in our life to try to get our attention. Now, what if I still don't? I just still rebel. God's dealing with me. I won't get it right. I'm stubborn, and I won't make it right. Then 1 John 5, 16 if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. For them that sin not unto death, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, when this happens, all the praying in the world won't do any good. And 1 Corinthians 5, 5 said, To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. It's two different men. In the past that I, that uh, they said I'm saved, I know I'm saved, they made a profession and they got out of the will of God, went back to the old life. I talked to them, I said, are you really saved? Did, did you really get born again? Absolutely, no, God saved me. I said, if that be true, then you, God has warned us that you cannot continue in this lifestyle without paying the price. This is two different occasions, two different men. I said, if you're really saved, I believe in less than a year, I'll preach your funeral. In less than a year, I'll preach both of their funerals. God will keep his word. Now, people say, oh, I'm saved, I'm saved. 
and they live away from God and they live out of the fellowship with God and they go on and on and on and on with no chastisement. The Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, they are not saved. They may have made a profession, they may have been baptized, but they are not saved. If you be without chastisement, he says, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons are not saved. If a person can continue in sin without God dealing with it. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is a, a scripture that uh, is confusing to uh, many people. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, now notice the connection here, how this connects with, uh, with uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You know, I'm amazed at how careless people are many times about church attendance and how they're just so careless about it as if it meant nothing. How serious is it? He says, if we sin willfully after that we've received the knowledge of the truth that remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God hath canned the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Now, the common understanding explanation of this scripture is someone that gets close, they come right up close to being saved, and yet they don't get saved. And that person, of course, uh, uh, can't be saved because they've gone into apostasy and whatever. But uh, the problem with that uh, explanation is verse 30 where he said, The Lord shall judge his people. I want to tell you, these are saved people. Now the other, the other uh, explanation of it is the person loses their salvation. There's nothing in this scripture that says anything about losing your salvation. But it talks about the judgment of God. And God, I believe, is simply telling us that if I really belong to the Lord, that God's going to deal with me. And if I willfully, blatantly, stubbornly rebel against the Lord and will not get right, that God will bring judgment and premature death if necessary uh, to... Uh, uh, to accomplish his will. God cannot violate his word. Now, there's another reason uh, or another way we can have victory and that is when we realize we must face Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And then in chapter 3, in verse 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I'll tell you, there's nothing will cause you to live right than knowing that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. 
And I would guarantee tonight that if we knew absolutely positively before next Sunday morning Jesus Christ would come back, I, I think I could say of a certainty that it would affect every one of our lives differently. I know it wouldn't mind. If I knew that absolutely, you say, would your life be affected? It most certainly would. Would yours? Victory comes by knowing we might face Christ at any moment. And the Bible teaches that's the way we're to live. That's the reason the Lord didn't tell us exactly when he's coming. He told us to be expecting it over and over in the parables and the messages Jesus came. Be also ready for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. He says be ready, be watching, be expecting his coming at any moment, any day. And the fact is that many times we don't live that way. In fact, I'd say probably most of the time we don't live that way. Facing the Lord at the judgment seat. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, a very familiar scripture says, verse 10 and 11, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciousness. Knowing the terror of the Lord, facing Christ, giving an account of every word, of every thought, of every deed, that's an awesome thought. I'll tell you, there's some things that's went through my mind I wouldn't want you to know about. I try to keep all those things confessed. There are some words I've said that I ought not to have said. There are some things I've done I shouldn't have done, some things I've left undone that I should have done. And having to face the judgment seat of Christ and reckon with a holy God that knows all of it. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? When the devil tempts you to sin, if you could be reminded of that truth, don't you think that would give you more, uh, more strength to say no to that thing? Sure it would. If you knew the Lord was recording every conversation, would you have had that conversation? Are those thoughts that you may have entertained, would you have entertained those thoughts if you knew that you'd have to face them again one day? You'd probably cut those things off. Stop that conversation. You ever walk up on somebody and the conversation stops? Well, the fact is that conversation shouldn't have been going on if that's what happens in most cases. Unless you're planning good for them and just didn't want them to know about it, planning a birthday party or something. But I'm talking about uh, things that oughtn't to be, should not be said. Listen. We shouldn't be talking about anybody behind their back that we wouldn't say to their face. That's a good rule to live by. If you can't look them in the eyes and say it to them, don't say it. What are we going to do when we have to meet the Lord? And not only will they find out, but everybody else will know about it. That that's spoken in the ear will be proclaimed on the housetops. Think of that. What an awesome thought. I'm talking about victorious living. 
realizing that we must face Jesus Christ and give an account will affect the way we live. You pray for me. Pray, let's pray for one another. God will remind us. The fact is, if you're like me, right, right this moment, I'm thinking of it real clearly. The thing I know, need to do is tomorrow I need to think of it real clearly. And, and when the old devil tempts me, and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day when the temptation comes, that I could be reminded say, Whoa, wait a minute. You're going to have to meet Jesus and give an account of that. I want to be reminded of that. I want to be warned about that. And that's the reason I'm preaching this tonight, that this truth may find a place in our mind, in our heart, and the Holy Spirit, who, who, who is one of his jobs is to bring to our remembrance whatsoever things I've said unto you, Jesus said. And I pray the Spirit of God will bring it to my remembrance and your remembrance when the temptation comes and before we yield to the temptation. In thought, word, or deed. One final thing on this point, and we'll leave the assurance to another message. How can we have victory over sin by forsaking this world? 1 John 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You know, most every part of life can fit into verse 16 somewhere. The, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That don't leave much left, does it? Most of the thing, most of what drives us in life is lust. Lust to satisfy the fleshly desires. Lust of the eyes, satisfying those the eyes and the pride of life, position, and prestige, power, that place of, of uh, uh, authority. Many people can't handle it. They can't deal with it. God said all that's in the world, and he tells us not to love it. Now, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. It's like you said, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. He didn't say you couldn't have any pleasure. He said, but when pleasure becomes more important to you than God, then it becomes a sin. And this could be applied to any of these areas. When you love that, when, when that's what you live for, and that's what drives you, and that's what motivates you, then God says it's a sin and it's wrong. And you know, it's real hard to get loose in this world. As the Lord talking to Peter, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than you love your fishing? Do you love me more than you love uh, your family? Or on and on you could go. Do you love me more than any of this? That's a question we could ask all of us. The Bible says in Luke 14, 32, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You know, Jesus has to come first. 
He has to be number one. Is he? Do you love the Lord tonight? More than you love anything else in this world. It's easy to say it. If I said, ask for a show of hands, how many love Jesus more than anything in the world? Probably every hand would be lifted. And yet we go out many times. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. Our works do not support what we say. We say we love the Lord, but do we? Do we really love Him? If Jesus came to us and carried on the same conversation he did with Peter, what would you say? Could you say, Lord, I love you as much as you love me? I don't know about you, I couldn't say that. I'm afraid I'd have to be with Peter. In fact, sometimes I wonder if I could even, if, I, if my love would even measure up to that point. You know, the fact is that many times we treat people better than we treat Jesus Christ. We may not want to admit it, but in action, it happens. We can say we agape love or phileo, which is a friendship love. Where does their love fit in? There's another love, which is essential love, you know, a different thing altogether. God help us tonight. God wants us to live right. This is the way. Let me review them. You have to get saved. Fall in love with Jesus. Fear the Lord. Realize we must face Christ and forsake this world. That's the way. Let's bow our heads, please.